Happy Friday, and congratulations on making it through another week here on the Airport Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest disaster movie ever made, the 1970 movie Airport. I am one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm host number two, Mark Cerulli of CovertOps.tv, and... Uh... For the second day in a row, we are joined by uh, a phenomenal cinematographer who's done movies near and dear to my heart, like Halloween 5 and Tales from the the Crypt. And he's also shooting The Fosters in Rosewood right now, uh, Mr. Rob Dreipa. <laughs> Thanks, Mr. Mark Cerulli, my, my <laughs> new agent. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's just it's just such a thrill hearing uh, uh, firsthand about how these things are done and and uh, really getting uh, the inside scoop from someone who does it every day. I do my best. I guess the the best part is if you're not noticed the you know, that the story comes through and that everybody's not noticing like, gee, that's an awfully dark lit picture, and you're not noticing things like that. But uh, trying to deal with composition and lighting and uh, depth of field and things like that is not important to the audience as telling the story. And that's your part of the storytelling process. And I guess it's a lot easier nowadays than it was back, you know, back in the days, like we're watching here on the Universal Studios lot, where they uh, pretty much had to crank up all the lights and hope for the best on on their large uh, uh, Technicolor uh, you know, process uh, film. This, uh, this current scene that we're looking at, this is after the explosion. Everybody's got on their uh, oxygen masks, and uh, we're cutting back and forth between what's going on in the, uh, in, the tourist lounge, in the tourist section of the plane and what's going on in the cockpit. So it's a very different lighting situation, the, uh, the full lighting of the large set uh, of where the passengers are, and then cutting back to the extreme darkness of the, the cockpit where you, you have a large cyclorama going around in the, in the background showing the stars. Uh, wing by I would imagine that would be a that would be a difficult scene to shoot uh, from the, the the requirements of the of the lighting uh, especially that that cyclorama in the back must have been very brilliantly lit to get those stars to show up well <laughs> probably what they had is a big black flat with a whole lot of holes poked in it and the light mm-hmm. shining behind it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, I, I actually did I actually did a similar thing in when we shot Spitfire grill the director wanted a shot seeing um, uh, Ellen Burstyn sitting in front of a window with stars twinkling in the sky outside. And we're in a, in a little house in, uh, in Vermont. And so we put up a piece of black cloth and then we got some, some of the silver paper that uh, chocolates are wrapped in and we stuck them to the silver cloth and then we put a light on, uh, st- stuck them to the black cloth and we shone a light on the on the paper, and then we moved the black cloth and shook it around so they twinkled. And then I just shot it very shallow depths of field so they're all out of focus and looked fantastic. Mm. Whatever works. <laughs> it's unbelievable yeah. the ingenuity that goes into to some of these things. Yeah, this um, th- th- this particular scene where they are. I mean, there's basically one light on the two guys, and the rest of it's uh, uh, those twinkly stars in the background. Mm. I, I keep trying to think of what was shot in this classic style, and I, the, the closest I can come to nowadays, I would think, would be a period piece like Mad Men, when you're trying, like, as a cinematographer, the cinematographer of Mad Men is trying to recall this style of camera work and uh, lighting and uh, set design. So I guess only in, in retro is where it's, it's still being used. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, really, you, you're using the same techniques 
everywhere. I mean, the 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 basic lighting style is is uh, you know when you want it to look really dark, you go very edgy and and backlit or side lit, um, and when you want it to be more high key, you come more around the front. And it's sort of like the old film noir films. You know, they they're all um, they're all either backlit or edge lit with very little fill light, and um, uh, and that's what you know, that's basically what film noir was. So all this is doing is going back to a film noir style, but we still shoot the same style. It's just we use different lights and different techniques to to achieve it. Yeah, mo- most of the people working on this, uh, at least. They, oh, uh, uh, be- before you, before you go on, I, I just want to say something. When when you're doing your introduction, you mentioned um, uh, about not drawing attention to the camera, and and. I, and I just want to say something about that because one of my biggest complaints about contemporary cinema is that it's all about technology and it's all about the camera um, and it's all it's all about the editing. Look, gee whiz, look what I can do! And that is the biggest destroyer of story that that you can come across because all of a sudden you're more interested in what the camera is doing than you are about whether it's a good story or whether you're engaged in the story or not. <laughs> And I find quite often with contemporary films that I go to the movies and all of a sudden I keep popping out of the film. And the reason I'm popping out of it is because I, I suddenly start watching the lighting or watching the camera movement or watching the steady cam shot. Or now all of a sudden where you know everyone's using drones for every, everything under the sun, and it's use of uh, use of technology for the sake of using technology, not for the sake of progressing the story. And um, so one of the things in these older films is they didn't have all that stuff, so they had to rely on really good, solid composition and camera movement when it was important um, and a lot of movement and blocking and staging of the actors. And to me, that's that's what cinema is about. It's not about you know, putting the camera on the end of a string and swinging it around your head and seeing what you capture. So, um, so yeah, you know, the the goal of the cinematographer really should be to make the camera work and the and the lighting invisible, so that you don't see it at all. Exactly. My my wife and I were at the most recent whatever the most recent uh, Mission Impossible movie was, and she pointed out that the old TV show of Mission Impossible, their opening credit sequence was this high energy, uh, fast cutting, fast motion, odd camera angles uh, thing. But nowadays, the the whole movie, the Mission Impossible movies, seem to be filmed like it's a gigantic opening sequence that lasts about two and a half hours. <laughs> so, I I mean, there are still uh, directors like uh, or cinematographers like Barry Sonnenfeld who manage to tell stories and do it, you know, in a unusual camera angles and things like that. But they still manage to tell the story and not uh, get involved. As much, even I mean, even if they use unusual camera angles, they still manage to tell the story instead of just saying, "Hey, look at me! I know how to operate a camera and put it in unusual situations." A lot of the people that worked on this Universal uh, on on the Universal Pictures at the time, not only the contract players, but they were contract uh, production folks. A lot of them were coming over from the world of TV. They were they would do uh, Universal, the NBC mystery movies, and things like that, and they were also working on feature films like Airport. And to me, this movie has kind of a television feel to it. I mean, I know it's a it's a soap opera, but it seems like the lighting is kind of flat mostly. Uh, I mean, they, they do try to be artistic in some places, but it seems to have that flat color television lighting of the 70s. Um, and you were saying yesterday that uh, 
that your television shows are being made more like motion pictures that that they seem to have that are you are you finding that mostly with with television shows that they're beginning to have a more cinematic feel to their uh to their look and feel yeah well it, it's interesting the history of it because when when i got into into doing tv was really towards the end of the 80s and and we we used to call the 70s and 80s the flamethrower period where people would just ring the camera with really big bright lights and blast away and just shoot it and um i mean that's that's being unfair to a lot of cinematographers but but basically that's how television was done um and the reason that was done on on tv was because uh they needed a a, a really strong signal uh to be able to beam it out and it had to be bright if the signal was dark um and the, i think technically when the signal was very dark it interfered with the audio because the audio and the video had to be combined together and uh so they couldn't have real dark scenes going out because uh, you'd end up with bad audio and then quite often the the networks would get calls from the audience saying there's something wrong my picture's suddenly gone dark and so everything was just brightly lit um now uh, the the other thing was the biggest lights that they used to use were brute arcs which were like a welding arc with a focusing beam on the front and um uh and so they're the lights that, uh, when i first came over here from australia that's what we used was uh, when i shot halloween 5 we used brute arcs um and it was right at the time where hmi lights were coming in and uh and of course now we've moved from Brutarks to HMIs to LEDs, and because the LEDs put out an enormous amount of light, but there's no heat associated with them. Um, but also with faster cameras and with TV uh, being uh, shaken up the way it is now by Netflix and Amazon, um, the demand for very high-quality feature film-style lighting is is even more than it was back in the 90s. So, so right now, pretty much everyone wants to work on TV more than they do on feature films because mm. the TV is where all the new innovative stuff is being done. And it's the complete opposite to what it was 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that the, the demand for the software side, I mean, all the, the Netflix and the Hulus and the Amazons, uh, there must be a great demand for long format, you know, just, just to fill the, fill the void. I mean, you've got not only... The you know the, the remnants of cable, but all these other places where you're having to deliver a series at a time so that people can binge watch shows. I would I would think that the demands on you to produce uh, is a lot. It has the, has the timetable speeded up for you for like like from a start of production to an end. I mean it must it must be more like a motion picture now from a production angle for doing an entire series. Um, the I mean the the schedules for one hour shows are still pretty much. Uh, seven, eight, or nine days, uh, depending on the complexity of the show. Um, on Rosewood, uh, we do uh, uh, they're doing eight uh, eight day episodes, and on the Fosters, uh, seven day episodes, um, and that's because the uh, Rosewood's a little bit more complex uh, in the way the show's done. So, so you have an extra day, and occasionally each one of them will do an additional day to that. Um, uh, which they call double up day because the, the script might be a little bit longer than normal or have more complexity to it. But the 
the demand now, uh, I mean, really Game of Thrones is what changed everything. The quality of that show is just so outstandingly high that everyone's got to compete with it. And um, uh, and also House of Cards. I mean, House of Cards is, is really nicely shot as well. Uh, as is Narcos, and I mean, it goes on and oh, on Narcos and on. Spectacular. Yeah, and uh, so, so the demand now is that you 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 must deliver feature film quality for TV, and if you don't, you just don't work. Are you finding yourself more on the road nowadays? Because I mean, it, it seems like the rarity is is now Hollywood that more of the things are being shot in places like Vancouver or in Georgia, or in North Carolina. Uh, are are you finding that the globalization of making television shows is has changed the way that you do your work um it, it's not for me in in particular at the moment because uh at the moment i'm doing two those two shows are studio shows but I've, i'm uh, i'm currently working on development of two feature films that will be shooting elsewhere um although one will be shooting here one will be shooting in uh, probably in hungary or italy but um the 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 thing now is that equipment is so mobile and so portable, um, and there is such an enormous number of of people who are good at their job all over the world that you can really basically shoot anywhere. And I know during the '90s when I was doing a lot of TV movies, I was I was shooting all over the place. It didn't matter, you know. I very rarely shot here in LA. It was it was always um, you know somewhere else in the country. This movie here that we're they're watching airport uh, being shot in Minneapolis just simply because they needed an airport and they didn't want to build an <laughs> build a set, but it was just about <laughs> and Chicago said no. Yeah, yeah, Chicago turned them down, so uh, it was surprising. But I, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> so they, uh, yeah, they, they, I mean, they went with this, and this is you know an, an actual Hollywood show, which I guess is now. Uh, not as not as common as it used to be, but you know it's it's interesting seeing this uh, as as the beginning of where you know you can tell this is almost like a dividing line between the past, the classic '40s Hollywood movie, and where things they're trying to catch up with the Easy Riders and the Woodstocks, and as we, we were talking about earlier, the the Dirty Harrys of the world, where um, yeah. you know, people are going to want a more action-packed film and rely less well, they used on... a lot of split screen in this movie yeah which is is funny you know they they went out of their way to bring in a a, a split screen because jim was explaining that uh, woodstock had used a lot of that and that gave filmmakers you know hey we got to do that yeah so get, do it for the kids you know get the kid the kids to come in and watch yeah, this, get the kids get in here. mod now yeah. in the movie <laughs> uh, but it's uh it's it's it, but it's still you yeah, know no, it's funny it's funny how all these things become fashionable you know yeah, it's uh, like, it's like it's like the most fashionable thing right now is drones. Drones, yes. are, yeah. And I, I was just asked to, um, you know, I'm working with a, a production company who are putting together a a film that's or a series that's very similar to Downton Abbey, but it's it's shot here in the United States and it's about a um, an old uh, an old inn here in in America, but. Um, they wanted me to put together a camera crew and I put together a, a list of a camera crew and they said, oh, there's no drone operator on it. And I said, well, why would you need a drone operator? And they said, well, wouldn't we shoot most of it on a drone? And I was like, uh, no, <laughs> this is about the interior of an inn and you're not going to shoot it on a drone. <laughs> 
I wonder if that. I wonder how that's affected the uh, Chapman Crane Company for you know the the replacement of uh, Chapman cranes with drones that you just you know bring something out in a truck and you don't have to worry about uh, getting. We well, could get some nice soaring overheads of the inn. Yeah, well, that's about that's about all we can get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, um, I I don't I don't think it's really affected companies like Chapman. Um, you know, you know it's. For independent films and for lower budget films, yeah, you know, you can you can rent a drone and send it up and get the get the high shots and stuff like that, and and even I guess for for TV you could do that, but we tend to use cranes still and and uh, remote heads and all that sort of stuff because you've got a lot more control. I guess and I guess it will continue to keep. I mean, this is an ever evolving uh, industry, and I think I can't imagine what they're going to be doing. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the new Rogue One movie. Uh, yet, but they they recreated Peter Cushing, and instead of just having him for just one one scene, they have him for about twenty minutes. And the idea that you can create a virtual actor and move him around on a camera with real life people is just you know. It, it, I remember. I think Jim, you you and I went to see a, a Game of Death in the seventies, which was the Enter the Dragon sequel. But Bruce Lee had died early in the production, and there was there was one shot of like a body double and they just like it was looked like a paper cutout of bruce lee's face taped, over the head they taped it on a mirror he was looking in a mirror and he was looking at a basically a xerox copy of bruce lee's face <laughs> it was, I, I think we both laughed yeah <laughs> but, uh, I, I, somewhere it is yeah it i mean some of some of the digital stuff that can be done now is incredible and and it's it's only going to get more pronounced as time goes on because um uh, I, I mean, essentially, actors in in the future will never die. You know, they they can just keep recreating them forever, yeah. and and I'm sure that actors' contracts are going to reflect that. You'll have to leave people, you know, their their likeness in their wills and things like that. You know, I, I was watching. Uh, we were on the uh, the Terminator uh, podcast. There's a movie, there's a podcast about Terminator movies and. One thing that they keep talking about is uh, the more Arnold Schwarzenegger appears in new movies, the younger he gets. They keep going in and doing digital <laughs> makeup to make him, you know, I guess he must be like seventy-five now. <laughs> He's he'll never he'll yeah, never. Yeah, but he looks young. He, he, he looks younger now than he did in the first Terminator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> He's fantastic. So. Wow. Well, Rob, thanks so much for being on our show, and we hope to have you back on uh, in a, in a later minute. We've got some more uh, some more interesting camera moves and uh, and storytelling uh, coming up, but uh, we, we would love to have you on again. Um, we will pick that up in the in the new year. Uh, for folks uh, who would like to learn more about Rob's work, uh, please visit us at uh, airportminute.com. We'll have links to uh, to some interesting sites on on this particular episode. Uh, also, if you'd like to follow us on social media, we're available on Twitter at Airport Minute. Uh, of course, you can always join us at Facebook, Airport Minute, and the Airport Minute Commanders Club, where everybody gets together and talks about all these wonderful episodes. Uh, so next week, we're going to look some more at uh, at Flight 2 as it's trying to make a landing with a big hole in the side of the plane. So uh, join us uh, next week as we finish out uh, the year of 2016 when we're recording this uh, on the Airport Minute. Until then, uh, Merry Christmas and uh, good day. Bye-bye. Nice going, sweetheart. Remind me to send a thank you note to Mr. Bowling. Mm-hmm.